Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13, beginning of verse 1. This is the very familiar passage of Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he had said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Heavenly Father, we pray that the familiarity of this passage won't lead us to think we already know it because we don't often do it. There's so many ways in which we violate this and we do not have in ourselves the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we walk through this, we would see the full extent of Jesus' love exemplified in this small outward service and fulfilled ultimately on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we came to the passage where Jesus said, Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. It was a turning point in the Gospel of John. He had been saying, My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Now the time has come. And don't you expect something grand and glorious? In fact, wouldn't it make sense to us if this were the the uh, entree to the cross itself, because that's the big event in which the full extent of Jesus' love was demonstrated. The hour had come for him to, to go to the cross and pay for our sins. So when we think of it that way, there's something stunning about this small service, this menial service, and yet it's particularly that that we should pay attention to. Because much of our life is built 
with the small occasions of small services to those around us that people may never notice. We need to remember that Jesus noticed the widow uh, who in the temple gave two mites. And she said, and he said of her, she gave more than everybody else because she gave all she had. Our goal is to be faithful more than it is to be big. That's the point of this passage. We are called by Jesus to serve one another. And he gives this example of serving his disciples. It's dramatic. It would be more dramatic if we could just step back into their culture and see how shocking it was. We don't have anything quite like this in our culture. In our culture, although it's human nature to be class-driven, we just tend to look down on others and puff ourselves up, and we, uh, we want to be that way just by nature. In our culture, perhaps we're not as afflicted as other cultures have been, where there's no chance for someone to escape a low class, to get to a higher class. People are assigned. It's an expression of the sinful human nature that is hardened. And one of the things we talk about in America, the janitor can become the CEO of the building, following his life as far as his abilities will take him because it's a land of opportunity. Those are the American themes. And yet, we have the same human nature as everybody else. And we tend to look down on others. We tend to disdain small services. We, you know, when we find ourselves in a high position, we think we're better than others. Jesus is addressing our nature. In fact, I would say it's a fruit of Christian culture in a, a very, very general way that such a culture could ever arise that would say that class structure that is so entrenched is not right and that we would develop a land that should be a land of opportunity. We look at our own culture and we see the places where our ideals expose a hypocrisy beneath them, where the opportunity is not there. The class structures seem to be defining and people are stuck. So, we have a culture as a fruit of a Christian nature say, that's wrong. Jesus is the one who set the example. He set the terms, and he did it by washing his disciples' feet. This was something that even Hebrew slaves were not required to do. You had to be a Gentile slave to do this, or perhaps a woman or a child. Other people that were, you do the small menial task. And Jesus goes to the bottom, and he does it to show three things. First, in this passage, it says, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. It is an echo of what we looked at last week when he said, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the pivotal moment. And so, the context is the Passover feast. In the Gospel of John, that reminds us of a theme from the beginning when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's not expressed explicitly in this passage, but since that is the context of the occasion, you can't help but see Jesus washing his disciples' feet and know that there's a, the undercurrent of the big picture that Jesus came to wash away our sins by his atoning sacrifice on the cross. This is an outward 
small demonstration of what he did for us ultimately on the cross. It is also an expression of love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Now, the washing of their feet was not the full extent of his love. It was just the beginning of the story. It was the small outward expression. It continues all the way to the cross. But you see, in my mind, I would have thought the scriptures should say, he now showed them the full extent of his love, and he submitted to the arrest, to the scourging, to the crucifixion, to make atonement for our sins. That's the full extent of his love. Isn't it interesting that John places here before a very small, insignificant kind of service, that this is a part of Jesus showing his love for his disciples. When he calls us to serve one another, we need to remember it's an expression of love. And in some ways, the smaller the service, the more menial, the, the lower, the, more, the, the greater the expression of love it is. So... Verse 2, the evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Interesting that that should be put here. Jesus is about to wash their feet. He knows what he's going to do. But the scriptures point out that he knew that Judas Iscariot was already prompted to betray him. And yet Jesus is going to wash Judas's feet. Well, that cuts against our human nature, doesn't it? If you knew that there was someone who was going to stab you in the back, would you be moved to wash their feet in whatever way was needed? Jesus did, and he did this, he tells us at the end of this passage, in order to provide an example, a model for us to do as he did. You see, that's the third thing. The first is that it's a, a small picture of the underlying theme of Jesus washing away our sins, Secondly, it's an expression of his love for his disciples, an expression of his love for us. And thirdly, it's an example for us to follow. He, he is the one who applied it this way. If you ever wonder, what's the application for, the, for this sermon? I can't give you a better reference than this. It's not a commentator. It's Jesus himself when he said at the end in verse 13, well, let's go back to verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Jesus applied his example in this way, that we are to follow it. Now, some uh, churches and some uh, theological traditions have thought this was like setting up another sacrament. You have the Lord's Supper and baptism and the washing of feet. So the scriptures nowhere else uh, use this as the illustration. In fact, in the middle of it, Jesus says to Peter, he said, uh, a person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. You're clean, though not every one of you. It's like, this is what is needed in this circumstance. In our culture, we have shoes and socks, and we don't have sandals and dusty trails, and it's not the custom to, to go into a household and to wash your feet before you enter and, and recline at the table. 
It's not needed in our culture. This passage ties it to that kind of need. But there are lots of needs in our culture that are small and low and menial that we find in our homes. Now, let's just make an application right now as an expression of love and in the small things. First, let's apply it to marriage. I love doing pre-marriage counseling because the bride and groom want to get it right. And the romantic ideal is, is such that, that they are expressing to each other, I, I love you for better, for worse, for richer, for, for poorer, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. That's the romance. That's what resonates. And I'll often point out and say, well, can you stick with this if it ends up being for poor, for worse, for sicker? Will you stick with that? Oh, yes, we will. Because that's romantic. But if you were to say, I promise to love you as long as everything goes well and you please me, that's not a romantic marriage vow. I've never had anybody request uh, for me to lead them in that vow. And yet, we often disdain the small services. It's when things get a little bit difficult just to handle, not the big details. Have you ever noticed how you can rise to the big deal and have the right attitude because you know you need to? It's the little straw that breaks the camel's back that'll get you frustrated, where your selfishness can show. It's an expression of love to consider one another more important than yourself. And it doesn't disdain the small service. Perhaps it is getting up in the middle of the night for your wife when one of your children is sick and running to the bathroom instead of just thinking, you take care of it. But that's just one example, and you know your own relationships. You know what works. But the, the motivating factor is for you to consider one another more important than yourself. And you can't do it saying, I'll do that for you as long as you do it for me. It has to be, this is an expression of love. And I will give without expecting in return. It's a delight when two people start doing that for each other and the relationship just grows and flourishes with that kind of love. And it'll be expressed in the small circumstances. Jesus didn't need to wash his disciples' feet because they could have called another servant to do it. The disciples certainly didn't expect it. In fact, Peter objected, what are you doing? What are you doing? They would have washed Jesus' feet. I'm sure they would have. But even though it wasn't expected, Jesus said, I'm going to go down to the lowest position of service because I want to set this example for you so that you'll do it for each other. The third point is that it doesn't abdicate authority. Let me read through the passage so I can get to the demonstration of that. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. He begins with the highest position he knew his place, and his place was the exalted Lord from all creation, from all eternity, before all creation, from all eternity, that he was God the Son. And he was going to be returning to that position. He knew everything was placed under him. So, what did he do? He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
he did the low service. He did the small service. But it's interesting that he didn't abdicate his authority. He didn't say, I'm resigning as son of God. He said, I do not account equality with God something to be grasped. I come not to be served, but to serve. And I'm going to go to the cross to give my life as a ransom for me. Let me show you in this very small circumstance what that looks like. Because you'll have lots of opportunities like this with each other. Lest you think that he did abdicate his authority. Look at the next, next verses. He came to Simon Peter asked him, Lord, you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Now, I don't think Peter was being proud here. I don't think he was saying, look, I'm insulted because you're saying I'm dirty. That was not the point. This was an act of reverence and honor. Peter knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. How could he conceive of, of such an exalted one washing his feet? It was respect and honor from Peter that he would say, no, no, uh, you'll never wash my feet. But Jesus, who always loved to set this you know, boisterous Peter straight in the, in the most loving way, he said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, if you forget the underlying big theme that Jesus is going to go to the cross to wash away our sins, you think, well, that's kind of petty. Jesus is showing, I'm going to show you how to serve. And you have to serve one another. And, oh, Peter, if you're, going to not, if you're going to object to me doing this, I'm kicking you out of the disciples' band. It's, it's so much bigger than that, that this is an illustration of what Jesus would do on the cross. And we can see that theme emerge here when he says, Peter, unless you let me wash away your sins, you have no part of me. You need to be served by a Savior so that you can have the doors open to you to come back to be right with God. What a gracious statement in such a brief and concise way. But Peter didn't understand. He was thinking it's just the washing of the feet. And he says, then the Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He wants to have a part with Jesus. He wants to belong to him. So when he realizes that to say no, Lord, is not really an honor, he, he expresses his love for Jesus. Wash it all. And then Jesus says, no, you don't need it. It's only what's needed for your feet. You see, that's why it's not a perfect metaphor for washing away our sins, because we need a Savior to wash away all of our sins. But Jesus is doing in this example, in this service, just what is needed. And Peter can't really push him around. He never abdicated authority. What's the illustration here? It's parents and children. You parents have charge of your children. You are father and mother. You are authorities in your child's life. And it's easy to uh, to take that and just be selfish about it and do what's convenient for you and to be frustrated with your kids when they're making it hard on you. I, there's a, a movie that Mary and I saw a long time ago when uh, a kid was growing up and, and finally was helping his mom out and then he was cross with her and she said, will this job never end? Ever feel like that? Well, we need to remember that God gives us the position of authority for the sake of our children. And if, our, if the way we exercise our position of authority is an expression of love, then we're thinking, what is best for our children? My father had a, a way that my sister remembered 
in, in particular. She was reflecting on it at his, uh, uh, when we were gathered for his funeral. She said one thing she, he remembered about daddy is that when he would um, have a rule, uh, a, a, a discipline or, or, or something that she had to abide by, he would say, I too am under authority and I'll need to give answer to, to the Lord about how I teach you in this. So she realized that he was trying to please Christ as he was trying to lead her. It wasn't just what was convenient to him or what was frustrating to him or what he wanted. He wanted to do what Christ wanted him to do as a father. You don't abdicate your position of authority in serving in your home with your children. You, in fact, you may learn more about service when your children are too young to give you the affirmation, the re reward, and the feedback about what that service looks like. Or when they get a little bit older, and like I did when I was, became a teenager, I just stopped talking to my parents. If you're at that stage, you stop getting the affirmation. There's a, a Father's Day card that uh, we, we loved. It said, I think it was a, quoting Mark Twain in some loose way, that said, Dad, when I was really young, I thought you knew everything. When I got a little bit older, I thought you didn't know anything. And then when I got still older, I realized you know quite a lot. And you'd open the card, and inside it would say, I love you in spite of your ups and downs. We don't abdicate our authority. God has given us responsibilities. That doesn't just apply in the home. It can apply in your work and in your business. You can aspire to positions. If God has gifted you to be a CEO, be the CEO that serves under the Lord Jesus Christ. And you exercise that authority in the way he would want you to exercise it. And you consider those that are underneath your responsibilities as better than yourselves, more important than yourselves. Can you do that? Can you wash their feet in that metaphorical sense? Don't consider, because you're the boss, that you are more important as a person than the one who is entrusted to your charge. Jesus didn't. He came to serve, not to be served. So don't measure yourself by your position, but by your faithfulness to Christ in that position. A good uh, definition of faithfulness would be obedient love. Sometimes you say, I'll be obedient, but you're begrudging. Or I will love and I can do what? Just as long as I feel loving, I can do anything. That's obedient love. That's a good definition of faithfulness. Finally, as we get through this, and we've already looked at how Jesus said, I did this to, as example that you would do as I have done for you. Let's consider, not by reading through the passages, but just look ahead in your Bible at the headings. In the next section, Jesus predicts Judas betraying him. It's already been pointed out in the passage that it had already entered Judas's heart to betray him. And then the passage after that is Jesus predicts Peter's denial. These are the disciples whose feet Jesus was washing. Can you serve without the expectation of reward? There is a key to joy and freedom in this. Can you imagine if you just picture the job description for, for God the Son before eternity, where the job description was, Here's what you got to do, God the Son. You're going to go down to earth, and you're going to become one of them, and they are going to uh, reject you, 
they're not going to believe in you. By and large, there will be a company that I will give you that will always be the narrow path, always be the, the smaller crowd. But the world, by and large, will hate you, reject you, scorn you, spit upon you, and crucify you. They won't thank you. And this is my plan from the start. You see, Jesus not only knew that Judas was there and Judas would betray him, Peter was there and Peter would deny him. In the previous passage in chapter 12, if you look at, back at the end of that, uh, verse uh, 37, it says, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill what the, prophet, uh, the word of the prophet Isaiah. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the, the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts. So the job description for God the Son, go to earth, experience all this suffering, make atonement for sin, they're not going to see it, except for the ones that I give you. Well, let's apply that practically. What if I said, we're recruiting for Sunday school teachers, and we'd love for you to teach Sunday school. Your kids are not going to pay attention to you. The parents will just drop the kids off and they'll take you for granted. And you'll feel kind of lonely in that service. Will you do this? See, if that's the way you look at it, there's no joy and freedom in that. And if you're expecting, I can do this because I think I will be affirmed. Boy, the parents will appreciate what I'm doing. Oh, the kids are just going to learn. They're going to rise up and thank me. For, for teaching them the word of God, if that's what you're expecting, we want that to be the case. But if it's more than just your desire, if it's your expectation, when one rejects you, it'll be extremely frustrating. I want you to remember when you step into a place of service that Jesus washed Judas's feet. He washed Peter's feet. And before he even came, this is what the Old Testament said would happen when he came, that he would, would not be believed and he would be rejected. If you can serve and say, I delight in serving my Savior, who gave his life for me, guess what? There is no one that has power over you by their rejecting to, to undermine your well-being because your well-being is founded in Christ who says, like that widow who gave the two mites, you gave your all in that Sunday school class. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So I've applied this to home, uh, marriage, parents, service in the church, mentioned business, extrapolate this to all of life. Because this is not just the church areas of life. It's not just the home areas of life. Jesus calls you to be this kind of servant. And guess what? There's a paradox. Just as Jesus didn't go down to the cross and end there, the Philippians passage that we read for the prayer of confession says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place that every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's your end. That's the last chapter of your life that God will raise you up to joy and glory. So you don't have to matter how, you don't have to worry about how far down your position to serve your Savior is because you know you'll be lifted up in Christ to joy and glory forever. Boy, then you're really free to serve. Can you see that? I'll close with a, a personal application. I have discovered that this is the freedom that I have as I'm coming up uh, to retirement. You know, it's, 
generally said men look to their work for their, uh, for their identity. Women will look to relationships. That may be a very generalized thing. One way or another, we tend to look to other things, other people, positions for our affirmation, our identity. If I found my identity in being senior pastor, then I'm about to, to fall off a cliff because I'm retiring. But if I find my joy in serving the Savior, then I'm just entering another chapter in which I serve my Savior by stepping back and sitting on the bench and cheering for the next pastor who comes. And I find joy in serving my Savior. That is seeking his kingdom and his righteousness first. And at first it seems, it's paradoxical. It seems like I'm putting myself down and I find, no, actually, it's so freeing because I'm not clinging. And there is joy in that. Have you discovered that joy? Have you discovered that in your Christian life, whatever your circumstance, whatever your position, whatever your relationships? It is the taste of the abundant life that Jesus came to bring us even now. And it's a foretaste of heaven to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that you would work in us so that we would be blessed. Jesus said, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let us experience the joy of it. This, it's almost romantic love for you. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, we are yours and we want to be faithful to you. And we will do as you bid and serve others. Because our welfare is not dependent upon them, but on our Savior. Our identity is not wrapped up in our position, but in our Savior. Our future does not end in death, but in glory. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.